Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. Let's hear about this episode's topic. Hi, my name is Hannah. I have a one-year-old, and since about six months, he's struggled with constipation. We've tried prune juice and suppositories, which sometimes work and sometimes don't. Is this normal? When should parents worry about constipation, and what else can we try? This is a wonderful question and very commonly asked. Very and I, common. Very, very common. Mm-hmm. I So common, in fact, that I was planning on doing this episode. Um, and the motivation for it actually came up because I was on parent call. You know, mm-hmm. that is like where you carry a pager. You respond to worried parent calls during mm-hmm. off hours. So like you know, nighttime when the clinic is closed and provide advice. When, like you're sound asleep. Yeah, right? when you're sound asleep. <laughs> and it was 2 a.m. and I got a call from a very worried parent um, who's two-month-old, hadn't had a bowel movement in two days, and it looked like they were really struggling. Mm-hmm. So it's the constipation call. Right. Mm-hmm. And so my husband overheard me talking them through it and offering some suggestions and providing reassurance. And this was the third after-midnight constipation I had gotten called on that week. Because it's such a common problem. Right. So I get back into bed. It's like 2 a.m. And he rolls over. He's like dead asleep. And he's like, you need to do a podcast on constipation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he was right. Constipation is common. It's one of the top 10 complaints that presents to a pediatrician's office. And we want to be clear that your child's pediatrician is absolutely the right place to go initially when your child is struggling with constipation to try to figure out what could be causing it, as well as try different interventions and treatment options. Right. As general pediatricians, we consider ourselves experts in constipation. But sometimes if your pediatrician has concerns or the usual initial treatment isn't working, then they may refer you to a GI specialist, a pediatric gastroenterologist. Mm -hmm. Constipation accounts for about 25% of the referrals that peds GI doctors get. And, you know, this is a fancy name for a specialist that focuses on children's gut health, pooping, but also they focus on the liver and the gallbladder and many other things. Mm -hmm. And lucky for us, we were able to convince one of our UC Davis pediatric gastroenterologists, Dr. Daphne Say, to come talk with us about constipation today. So thank you so much for joining us on Kids Considered. Thank you very much, Dr. Bloomberg and Dr. Rothstein. I'm delighted to be here. (laughs) We're very excited to have you talk about this very important subject with us. Yeah, so today we're going to focus our discussion on constipation in the infant and toddler age group. Right, the most, I feel like the one you get the most questions about probably and where everything starts. So let's start at the very beginning. So with meconium, this is a baby's first poop. Dr. Say, can you tell us what meconium is and when should kids pass it first? Sure. Meconium is a term that is probably heard pretty frequently both in the OBGYN's office and in the newborn nursery. Really, it just refers to a baby's earliest poop. It's a little bit unusual and looks very different, mostly because it's comprised of a lot of different materials that the infant usually is exposed to in the uterus. So that's why meconium tends to look really sticky like tar. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have the same odor as infant stool. And it can look like all sorts of different colors, usually various shades of like green or brown or yellow. Mm -hmm. And when does um, that switch, the meconium change to the more soft yellow green stool? More 
often than not, meconium usually is completely passed within the first three to five days of life, with stools progressing more towards looking like yellow to green, more like digested milk. So once the stool has transitioned, so usually the very first poop after the baby's born, when does that happen? We usually would expect the infant's first stool after birth for them to start passing meconium within the first 24 hours of life. So it's one of the things that in the newborn nursery, um, I know that our pediatricians and pediatric nursing team are trained to look for. But especially when you come to specialty clinic, that's actually one of the questions that we'll usually ask when we're seeing a patient for constipation, no matter the age. Right, because there can be some things that are more pathologic or worrisome if a child didn't pass meconium in that first day or two of life, correct? Exactly. Yeah. So once the stool has transitioned, so you're around day five and your breastfeeding's going well or formula feeding's going well, what is the frequency of stools that kids should be having at this point? That's a really excellent question. I think one of the reasons why um, constipation can be such a confounding issue for a lot of families is that there may not be a ton of hard and fast rules. Frequency for uh, pooping in infancy actually really varies um, anywhere from Uh, multiple times a day in some infants to once every week, usually depending on whether they're formula feeding or breastfeeding. So what is the difference between um, breastfed um, infants and formula-fed babies? How does the stooling pattern vary? Well, um, the thought is that in breastfed babies, the reason why they stool less frequently, um, and there's not a ton of great evidence about this, but the theory is that because breast milk is much more easily digestible, Um, the stool patterns look much more different. Some stools can be as frequent as one to every seven to 10 days in breastfed babies, Um, but these numbers can vary wildly among patients. I think the biggest things that we often look for when we think about what is quote-unquote normal is what the rest of the baby symptoms are like. As long as they're feeling comfortable, as long as they're gaining weight, um, those we often consider different red flags that can help us when deciding whether or not the baby's pooping pattern is normal or abnormal. Yeah. yeah, that and it makes sense. And it makes sense that parents worry when there's that much wide variation. And they're mm-hmm. like, well, my last kid pooped twice a day or after every feed, and this kid's pooping once a week, and how that could raise concern for sure. Right. So a lot of parents also come in worried about the color of the stool. Like, I can't tell you how, I'm sure you experience this more than I do, the pictures on the phone. You know, showing you the oh, color. Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh-huh. I get parents saying that to me, too. Like, oh, the, and they sometimes say it, it smells bad. And I'm thinking, well, don't <laughs> don't they all smell bad? <laughs> they all smell bad. But breast milk stools are, like, tolerable, I feel like, usually. But it just depends. So is there a color that we should be like, okay, that is not normal? Mm-hmm. I think the question about color of stool is one I think that all of us as providers get really often. I think that the three major colors that always raise concern for me. So what I often tell parents is um, stool can be any color under the sun for a lot of different reasons, but the ones that always raise alarm. So if stool is bright white, like the walls in the office room, so chalky colored, that usually raises concern for some sort of liver or gallbladder problem. If uh, your stools are bright red, which of course can look and be concerning for blood, and dark black, which makes you think about uh, older blood. 
in uh, my career so far, I've had some very interesting calls about different colored stool, both from our colleagues and from patients themselves. Um, as a quick aside, I think one of the funniest stories I heard was from uh, one of our inpatient nurses who called to report that one of our patients in his diaper had um, glittery colored stool. <laughs> Glitter. <laughs> I can't imagine how that got there. It was actually one of the um, best pages I've ever gotten. <laughs> um, it, it turned out our child life folks had brought some non-toxic Crayola crayons by the ward earlier that day. And uh, our night nurses were seeing the aftermath of, of uh, non-toxic crayons with a toddler. Oh, That's pretty man. spectacular. That sounds fun. Yeah. Glittery stool. Uh-huh. So in the first few months, many parents get worried if their child doesn't have a stool, a bowel movement every day, or if it looks like they're straining or working really hard to pass a stool. Is this normal? And when should parents begin to worry if their child has not had a bowel movement. Yeah, like that face, you know, they're like, they turn bright red and they're screaming. They're screaming. They look uncomfortable. Yeah. Of course. Um, I think that certainly is one of the most concerning things for parents because, of course, no parent likes to see their child be in pain or be uncomfortable. Um, we think that the reason why some infants look like they're struggling with stooling, the fancy term that we use to describe it is infant dyskesia, which really just refers to the fact that sometimes infants have difficulty coordinating their muscle tone to pass a bowel movement successfully. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges, of course, and I think we all face this as pediatricians, is with a really young infant is they can't always tell us what it is that bothers them the most. Um, It is definitely normal for children to appear like they're straining or working hard to pass a bowel movement. Uh, In terms of uh, time frame, I think that, you know, the number that we often cite to parents is if they haven't had a bowel movement that seems to correspond to their normal pattern. Um, So, for example, if this is an infant who usually stools about once every other day and it's been, say, an additional 24 hours, I usually tell families, okay, if you feel like that it's been an extra day longer than they normally do, call your pediatrician because perhaps there may be some intervention that may be able to be employed. Uh, I think that, you know, for a lot of families, I think what they often want is the, well, what's the specific number And more often than not, what I try to tell them is, well, keeping in mind that everybody's different, if you feel like it's a deviation from your son or daughter's normal pattern, Mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that makes sense. So let's talk about older, a little bit older kids. So once the kids get older, like in the toddler age group, what's the normal frequency of stooling then? (laughs) With the caveat that you've told us that it is variable to each kid's, Mm -hmm. you know, specific On average, I would say once every other day, Um, keeping in mind, of course, that uh, I have met many toddlers who, depending on their diet, have much more frequent bowel movements. I think that the bit of the caveat is that if you're familiar with the term toddler's diarrhea, uh, toddler diet can sometimes consist of a lot of things like fruit and juices and other things that tend to increase looser stools or increase frequency of stool. And so I often um, review diet histories with parents in general, just to get a general sense of, well, what should this child's normal stooling pattern look like? Um, We think that foods that are higher in things like fruit sugars uh, do tend to increase frequency of stool, which 
and I know we'll probably get into this a bit later, is why we often talk about things like prune juice or pear juice for little ones who are struggling with constipation. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes Could sense. Could you talk about some toddler diets that might result in less frequent stools? Sure. So um, we often cite things like dairy as a culprit. Dairy gets blamed for quite a lot. But the thought is that um, the high fat content in dairy-based foods does tend to slow down uh, your motility to some degree. And if you look at the sort of average toddler snacking pack, uh, there's usually lots of yogurt, cheese, dairy, all sorts of things. And so a lot of times it does get blamed for causing problems with constipation. Um, In general, I think that the advice I try to give is as pragmatic as possible. Uh, I think that hydration is a really important thing for all of us, but especially with little ones, because often, more often than not, it's difficult to tell exactly how much fluid they're getting in every day. Um, uh, Usually, I think that the struggle with determining how much they're getting in, what I've heard from parents is, but he's drinking all day. Well, if he's had the same sippy cup all day and they've just sort of been topping it up a little bit at a time, it's hard to tell exactly how much fluid they're getting in. I usually try to relate most of the advice I give to our parents to some of their own personal experiences as well. For example, I'll often tell parents, well, you know, when we as adults are struggling with this issue, I think the same advice applies. Lots of fruits and veggies, lots of fiber, definitely increasing hydration and volume as much as possible. Those are great tips. So, I've heard that 95% of constipation is functional. Can you describe what functional constipation means for our listeners? Uh, Functional constipation is probably one of my least favorite terms. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's, It's an umbrella term. It essentially refers to any kind of persistent, difficult, infrequent, or seemingly kind of incomplete passage of stool without any evidence that there's any primary anatomic or biochemical cause. I often tell parents, we use the term functional constipation, but it's the worst term because it's the opposite of functional. Um, Really, it just refers to the categories of constipation that can occur in the absence of any evidence of labs, anatomic problems, or organic disease. Um, And 95% of constipation in kids and infants is usually functional. So we talked about um, some of the more like red flag symptoms like you talked about that make you more nervous with meconium. So that you always ask, did the child pass meconium in the first two days of life? Mm -hmm. Um, And the color of the stool. And the color of the stool, Mm -hmm. the white being concerning the blood, the black. Um, But for those kids that there may be actually something anatomic or organic going on, you know, what, what do you look for and what are those things that you think of? Well, the minority of cases of constipation that we see in GI clinic are because of organic disease. Those organic diseases can be really scary. Um, As you mentioned, uh, anatomic causes can certainly cause constipation, though we would hope in GI clinic that a lot of these things would have been picked up either in the newborn nursery or by an astute pediatrician. They can include a lot of um, congenital diseases or anatomic abnormalities. Um, uh, There are other metabolic conditions that we'll often screen for, so electrolyte issues, 
anemia, even things like celiac disease can initially present with constipation. And much more rarely, there are a lot of intestinal nerve or muscle disorders that can also just lead to really severe chronic constipation from an early, early age. There are also some specific ages that um, kids are more more likely to struggle with constipation, which is normal, I think, kind of a normal phase they go through, like when solids are introduced around six months of age, and then again during potty training. Why are these particularly hard times? No pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, the three critical time periods, just like you mentioned, Dr. Bloomberg, for me, I think of an infant's introduction of cereals and solids in toddlerhood, toilet training, and for a little bit of some of our older kids, even something just like the start of school. Um, We think that uh, with infants, when solids and cereals are introduced, usually around four to six months, it's when they struggle with um, infant dyskesia even more. So what that means is that those mechanisms that control stooling that are present in the newborn, um, when you introduce a new variable, so solid food, for example, um, it tends to be much more challenging. And so these infants can sometimes fail to coordinate that increased intra-abdominal pressure with relaxing those muscles that can help them pass a bowel movement. Like the anal sphincter. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I'll have parents tell me that they see their child pass a bowel movement successfully, but they're straining and struggling for 10 minutes or more. And usually their stools are quite soft. The good news is, is that as these children get older, that tends to get better with development, age, and um, muscle maturation. With my um, preschool children and even younger toddlers, toilet training can be hugely challenging um, for a number of different reasons. I think that one of the toughest is that it's a period in which we have toddlers who are now finding their own sense of free will and independence. And... I think that one of the things I often tell parents is children don't do things that are painful. And so if they ever had one single painful, difficult, or challenging bowel movement during a toilet training period, it can turn them off from the whole process entirely. And then it becomes a battle of wills. (laughs) And toddlers have a strong will, probably stronger than the parents. Oh, absolutely. I have never won an argument with a toddler. (laughs) (laughs) I have nothing they want. I can't negotiate with them, let alone try to convince them in the clinic that they should listen to their parents when they're trying to get them to toilet train. Uh, I usually try to let parents guide me in terms of their child's temperament, um, but I often warn them that there's no individual on the planet more stubborn than a resilient toddler. And uh, more often than not, the approach that we take with toddlers who are struggling with pain or any kind of challenge during toilet training is to hopefully try to gradually convince them that it should be a painful activity. When children are just entering preschool is the other sort of third stage where things can be challenging, and that's where there's a whole lot of other social overlay that comes into play. Um, There's the difficulty of a new environment sometimes that can be challenging and can make a child who's normally toilet trained at home suddenly refuse to use the toilet further at school. Um, Traumatizing situations can also influence their interest in using the restroom. A colleague of mine who's one of our excellent um, developmental behavioral pediatricians once shared with me that small children really have control over two major things, 
bathroom use and food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you see the behaviors come out in both settings. Which makes so much sense when I think about a lot of the patients that we see in our clinic. Yeah, totally. And just and just like to remember that although we're talking about toddlers as stubborn, we also realize that this is a normal part of development <laughs> yes, and totally. that that it is it, it's a beautiful part of development in a way in that they are developing their own autonomy which we want to celebrate mm-hmm. even though it can Precisely. be difficult to experience that. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a big balance for a lot of our parents because we want them to encourage the independent development of their personalities and their free will. But also we want to try to make sure that we're guiding them in a way that um, hopefully um, leads to more success in the future. Absolutely. We see sometimes that constipation can manifest also as other symptoms or problems. So, for example, some kids that are constipated, usually in the older age group, will complain of abdominal pain or may have a decreased appetite. And we can also see things like urinary tract infections as a result of severe constipation. Okay, so let's say your pediatrician has ruled out some medical cause of constipation and determined it is functional constipation. Are there any behavioral routines parents can do at home to help encourage a more normal stooling pattern? We talk right, about like, so the, this is the older, like taught in the toddler because we talk about how routines. We've mentioned this before. Routines are yeah, so important critical. to this age. I agree. Routine is definitely really key, especially with uh, our younger children. Uh, What we often suggest is having parents employ something like toilet time. What that means is that uh, to try to take advantage of a normal gastrocolic reflex, we have parents tell their kids, you know what, instead of you sitting down on the toilet and struggling for an hour or two just trying to pass a bowel movement, let's institute a routine. Uh, The most basic is we tell parents for a couple times a day for five minutes at a time, have your little one sit on the toilet no pressure. If nothing happens, fine. But uh, just try to make it a regular routine so that perhaps they can hopefully get into a pattern of recognizing those sensations that say they need to use the restroom and um, being able to be successful with that. In fact, actually, um, for our children who struggle with constipation the most, we actually work with a really excellent team of physical therapists who actually do pelvic floor physical therapy with our um, most challenged patients to try to help them sort of regain that routine that for the rest of us seems normal. Wow, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. So we talked a little bit about diet modification already, um, but I just want to throw in that the AAP does have a recommendation for fiber intake, which can sort of help with the bulk, um, you know, regular stooling for kids. So they said that kids age 2 to 19 years old should eat daily fiber um, that equals their age plus 5 grams. So I thought that was kind of easy to remember. So if you're 2 years of age, you would get 7 grams of fiber per day. And high fiber foods are things like you mentioned, like fruits, vegetables, beans, grains, and we can put a list of high fiber foods on our website. We also, like you mentioned, want to make sure that they're getting enough water and we can post how much they should get on our website as well. So we've talked about why it happens, what's normal, what's abnormal, some routines. So that kind of brings us into remedies Mm -hmm. and medications. So starting with over-the-counter treatments or home remedies, what have you seen that's worked for parents? 
Well, for a lot of our families, I think that the approach that a lot of them prefer is starting with uh, more food-based things if we can. Uh, I've always felt very strongly that um, food is probably our first medicine. Also, it's probably much more enjoyable to have um, a really delicious meal than to try to take medication for anything else. Um, some of the first uh, strategies that we'll often suggest, especially for our really, really young kids. So in early infancy, rectal stimulation with things like glycerin suppositories is not unreasonable. Um, for kids less than, say, six months or so who are struggling with dyskesia, basically that poor coordination of muscles that causes issues with straining, um, using a glycerin suppository uh, may be a reasonable option to try to help relieve any kind of uh, constipation. Um, in our older um, kids, so once children are uh, transitioning more to uh, solid foods and away from formula and milk, prune juice, apple juice, and similar fruit-based beverages can be helpful. As I alluded to earlier, the increase in fruit sugars in these beverages can actually cause um, uh, looser stools. And so we try to take advantage of that in our toddlers so that if they are struggling with constipation, um, an ounce or two of prune juice, pear juice, or anything similar can be used to try to help relieve the issue. We've talked about some of the over-the-counter things, diet modifications, suppositories, which are over-the-counter, but what other medications might their pediatrician recommend or if they made it to see you in the GI clinic, what um, medications are most frequently used? Uh, the most frequently used medications that a parent might encounter would probably be under a category of medicines that we call osmotic laxatives. These are medicines that are designed to help bring water into the GI tract to make poop softer. The most common one that is probably utilized is a medicine that goes by the brand name Miralax. Um, the generic name for it would be polyethylene glycol, and it also is available under a number of different names depending on where you purchase it. Uh, this is a powdered medication that is mixed into any kind of clear liquid and is designed to try to help make poop softer by bringing water in the colon. Similar medications that have also been used, so before Miralax became uh, more widely used, some what I would consider old school medicines would be like magnesium-based medications. So I've had parents um, nod their head and say, oh yes, I remember my grandmother having me take milk of magnesia when I was having constipation. Or um, even more than that, things like a cod liver oil, mineral oil, all of those things are equally effective in helping lubricate stool and make water come in the colon, though understandably some are much more palatable than others. Boy, that <laughs> cod liver oil, that goes back like 100 years or more. Oh, it? yes. <laughs> I actually saw a patient the other week whose grandmother actually told me that she was, quote, this close to breaking out the cod liver oil from her very <laughs> uh -huh. old medicine chest. Yeah. Oh, man, I'm glad she didn't do that. Uh-huh. Do these medications have to be used every day or just until the child has a bowel movement? And do parents need to be aware of any side effects from these medications? Mm -hmm. So in terms of frequency of use, I would say that as a GI doctor, I am a bit biased. By the time patients are coming in to see me in my clinic, they're usually quite severely affected with the issue. And so we tend to be pretty aggressive about medication use in that period. 
The reason why we do tend to encourage regular use of these medications in that period of time is mainly, as I often tell parents, to try to nip the issue in the bud. If you have a three to five-year-old who is really struggling with toilet training, and this can be such a stressful issue because toilet training can affect a whole number of things, like whether or not they can go to kindergarten, whether or not they can go to a friend's birthday party, it becomes a huge stressor. And so I tend to be very aggressive about medication use in that period, if only to get them sort of through that hump. And by that, I mean trying to convince the toddler that perhaps it shouldn't be painful for you to go to the bathroom. And so hopefully once we get them there, ultimately the plan is to transition them from regular medication use to managing their constipation with diet modification alone. What I often tell moms and dads is I know that it seems counterintuitive for someone who just told you she'd rather use food than medicine to tell you to do medicine regularly. But my goal is that once his symptoms become really well managed, we can slowly start tapering off the medicine, transitioning to just food-based management, and then you can have these medications in your medicine cabinet as needed. Um, from a side effect standpoint, I think that there's certainly been a lot of discussion both in pediatric clinics and even on a myriad of online groups um, about side effects of medications like, say, Miralax. Um, I think the biggest one that we often say as well, Miralax, uh, the biggest side effect is diarrhea, which is not always the worst thing when you're <laughs> struggling with a child with constipation. Um, as uh, physicians, we often tell parents that Miralax is what we would consider to be a pretty safe medication in the sense that from what we know about it, it's not absorbed by the body. That being said, though, there are a lot of uh, um, different uh, concerns voiced by parents and uh, other individuals about whether or not these medications can lead to a number of other issues. I've had parents discuss use of uh, constipation medications in uh, children with, say, autism, perhaps causing behavioral challenges. Um, there's also been concern that uh, with use of these medications, um, it can lead to anything from abdominal pain to poor appetite or even, quote, worse constipation. Um, from what we know about it, uh, there's not a lot of evidence that suggests that these medications do that. But I think that on a case-by-case -case basis, we as physicians try to be really sensitive to our parents' concerns. And as I tell lots of moms and dads, if this one doesn't work, that's okay. We've got a couple other ones in the toolbox that might be worth trying. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So I think that gave a really good overview of how we might treat constipation. And like I mentioned in the beginning, and you mentioned too, that a lot of this is handled at the general pediatrician's office and only the hopefully severe cases make it to the GI specialist. And in what cases do you feel like a pediatrician or a parent may start to advocate for a referral to a specialist? Um, at what point do you think that's appropriate? I always tell my colleagues to consider referring their patients to come see us if they feel like they've tried all the standard typical treatments, but they're just not getting any success. Or in some really severe cases, if uh, the pediatrician feels like much more specialized testing is required. Um, we briefly alluded to this earlier, but there are a lot of intestinal nerve or muscle problems that can just present with really badly, um, uh, really just 
badly managed or poorly controlled constipation, and some special testing done in the GI doctor's office might be needed to diagnose an underlying condition. Um, another big reason to refer to come see us, I think one of the things that I appreciate as a specialist is that we often have the luxury of time compared to our general pediatricians. Our general pediatricians are tackling so many things in a single visit, whether it's making sure our kids' vaccines are up to date, um, that uh, their overall health is well managed, that a lot of times the time needed to go through the questions and concerns a parent might have might merit the uh, additional time that they're able to spend with us in specialty clinic. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think we appreciate your help from this end, too, yeah, for yeah. sure. So going back to our patient question, she has a one-year-old that struggles with constipation, but um, developed at six months, which coincidentally is when we you're starting about to introduce food. Mm-hmm. So very common time. It does seem like suppositories and prune juice and things like that have worked. Um, hopefully some of the diet strategies we gave are helpful and um, she can talk to her pediatrician if this becomes a bigger issue. Absolutely. So let's summarize today's episode. Okay, so constipation is a really common issue in pediatrics. Yep, we see it. It's one of the top 10 complaints and it's 25% of the referrals to the Peds GI office. Mm-hmm. And infants in the first six months of life, if they're breastfed or formula fed, they can have an extremely variable amount of stools from several times a day to once a week. Right. And we know that constipation tends to creep up when we're adding in solids into their diet, when they're learning to potty train, and then when they they transition to school. Mm -hmm. There's a variety of routines and other um, dietary interventions that we can use to ease constipation. Right. And then if those don't work, a medication may be recommended by your pediatrician. And your pediatrician should keep an eye out for all the red flags that we talked about in this episode. And if any of those are present or things just aren't getting better, you may need a referral to the GI specialist. And we'd like to thank our pediatric gastroenterologist specialist, Dr. Daphne Stay from UC Davis Children's Hospital for joining us on today's episode although Dr. Lena and I take full responsibility for any errors or misinformation. So we are curious, Dr. Say, what some of your favorite constipation stories are. Oh, I think there's just a lot to choose from. Um, (laughs) I think that uh, one of my favorite stories, um, so uh, several years ago, I met a then- five-year-old who had recently started kindergarten. And uh, he had been an otherwise healthy kid with no issues with constipation until suddenly starting his new preschool. Um, He, by all accounts, loved school, loved his teacher, loved his classmates. Um, And uh, when interviewing him with his mom, out of nowhere, he shared the reason why he wasn't using the bathroom anymore. And his mom and dad were absolutely astounded because they had driven about two hours to come see us in clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, and he shared in a very animated way uh, the story he had heard from some older kids in his class about why it was dangerous to use the bathroom at school uh, because 
uh, flushing the toilet meant that the fire alarm would go off. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and so that's why oh, his, no. um, he had suddenly decided to stop using the toilet. He was he was a good citizen. I know. I was gonna. Th- I thought you were going to say there was like a, a toilet monster, monster or something. Was that was my like, first story, too. But he was uh-huh. just so engaged. And he said, and that's why you don't do that anymore. <laughs> his mom and dad, their jaws were on the floor. Because they had been seeing his pediatrician for, oh, the past couple of months for this issue. The great thing is, is that he was such a smart, receptive little guy that just by sitting down and taking some time with his mom and dad and his teacher helped quite a lot, too. Mm -hmm. um, And telling him that, no, the toilet was not connected to the fire alarm (laughs) at all. (laughs) Sometimes when my husband goes to the bathroom, I want to sound the fire alarm, but, you know, unrelated. <laughs> um, after some some counseling and intervention, we were able to get him back on track. And I actually consider that a pretty significant success oh, story. That's a, that so, is, no, that's a great treatment. No, <laughs> no, I would say that I can't take full credit for uh-huh. <laughs> For treating, yeah, yeah for fixing his no, constipation. No prescription necessary for that Oh, one. man, that's great. Yeah, well, so um, have you seen that new movie, Constipated? N- what? No. Well, that's because it hasn't come out yet. <laughs> Oh, I'll have to save that one for my next patient. Throw one joke in there. Uh, All right. Dr. Say, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. No, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital.